1: Market-moving insight and analysis join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street.
2: And we do begin. Good Tuesday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Morgan Brennan with Scott Wapner and Bob Pisani live from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. Carl, Jim, and David have the morning off. We're just taking a look at futures right now. A little bit of a mixed picture this Tuesday morning, holiday-shortened week with uh, the Dow and the S&P both poised to open higher, but the NASDAQ down slightly right now in a pre-market trade crude is higher bond yields are higher gold is higher guys i guess i'll start with you bob um, it is a santa claus rally but first i think we're supposed to start with our roadmap, map right our roadmap starts with china officially ending its quarantine for international travelers come January in an essential end of its COVID, zero COVID policy. Crude and stocks as they just mentioned are moving higher on that news.
3: All right, plus, cancellation chaos. Southwest warning, mass disruptions will continue after scrapping more than 70 percent of its flights on Monday. The DOT calling it, quote, unacceptable. And it's looking like another down day for Tesla, slumping on news of an extended production pause. We do have those details ahead.
2: But first... We begin with market action, and we do see stocks trying to rally on the last trading week of the year. Uh, As I mentioned, Santa Rally kicking off here, Bob Pisani. It's something you watch and talk about every holiday season, every year. Um, And it seems like potentially we could be poised for that again this week, although we should keep in mind, low volume, higher volatility, anyone's bet where we finish. This
1: is one of my favorite indicators. There's a lot of um, old Wall Street mythologies that that frankly aren't very interesting or haven't worked very well in recent years. This one does, and it's the tendency for the market to rally in the last five trading days of the year, the first two of the new ones. Uh, It's unusual to have a seven-day stretch where the market would rally consistently, so it's statistically unusual, and up 1.3% on average over the last 50 years. That is much higher than you would expect. Expect over a seven-day period so this actually has some interesting value it works eighty percent of the time four out of five times the Santa Claus rally works now here's what it does not say it doesn't mean if it doesn't happen in that twenty percent of the time if we don't get a rally in the next seven days will be down next year it says if we don't happen It says January tends to be a down month, and it says the S&P tends to underperform its historic average. It doesn't necessarily say it'll be down. So it's one of my favorite indicators. It actually works.
3: Yeah. Well, rarely does history collide with the Fed, and that is one of the problems in thinking about, A, whether you're going to have a Santa Claus rally, and B, whether you're going to have a down year next year backing up what was an ugly year this year. you got to contend with all of the issues that everybody knows about. Fed tightening slower earnings and whether stocks can mount any sort of a meaningful move higher in the face of some pretty severe headwinds. Uh-
2: that's right. I, mean, I was going to say, stocks, worst year since 2008. We got bonds, worst year ever on record. And then to your point, the Fed has taken rates from zero coming into March to 4.5%, four and a half percent, four and a quarter to four and a half percent as we stand right now, plus quantitative tightening, Bob, yeah, which you, I think is a, a key thing to watch in 2023. So the big
1: debate, everyone is fearful 2023 could be another down year on top of the down, essentially 20 percent we've had this year. Um, historically, this history would argue that it's unlikely that that would happen. Down, Back-to-back down years are extremely unusual. The stock market tends to go up. We point this out many times, but since 1928, the, the S&P 500 has been up almost three out of four years. There you go, up 72% of the time and down 28% of the time. Uh, and there's only been very, very few times when the S&P has been down back-to-back years. In fact, really, there's been four periods, the 19... The Uh, 29, 32 period, uh, right in period late in uh, 1939 to 41, 2000, 2001, and 2002 were three down years, Uh, and then there were 73 and 74. So the last time we actually had back-to-back down years was 2001, 2001, and 2002. Now, we've had really bad years, you know, obviously. So remember, peak to trough this year, 25% decline. From January to October, peak to trough decline was 25%. During the financial crisis, it was 50%. So I'm not saying that this is a, a great year. Just compare it to some really bad down years. So, Scott, just look here, and I'll, I'll get to your point here, what you want to make in a minute. But it's very un- unusual to have big declines. So there's only been seven periods since 1945 when we've been down 20 to 30%. This may be one of them only three were we're down 30 to 40 and only one down 50 percent plus and of course that was the financial crisis these are peak to trough not year over year numbers so my point here in bringing this all up is we could have another down year but It's rather historically unusual. The odds are against it. And when it's happened in the past, there have been extraordinary events like the the oil crisis, like the dot-com bursting and 9-11, and like the financial crisis. It takes something of that magnitude to be down two years in a row. Put
3: into perspective what Morgan said, the Fed goes from zero, raises 400 basis points plus right? And the implications of that that nobody saw coming. There was a great article over over the weekend how the strategists, well, they got earnings dead right. In Mm. fact, like the margin of error within the earnings forecast was one of the best in the history of forecasting such a thing. Where did they miss? They missed wildly on price because nobody expected that the stock market would be down the magnitude in which it was because nobody expected that the Fed was going to have to raise interest rates anywhere close to the speed and the degree. Right. to which they did that upset everybody's forecast for the most part for where the S&P 500 was going to end up this year. So this
1: is the main argument for why we might have a down year that this is one of those extraordinary events like the oil crisis, like 9/11, That's what like I was the thinking. financial crisis qualify? that the extraordinary speed at which the Fed raised interest rates qualifies as such an outsized event that it could force a second down year. That's exactly, you just identified exactly the parameters of the debate. Is this such an extraordinary event by the Federal Reserve, plus the lingering effects of COVID, plus the Russia-UK invasion? Remember, it's not happening alone, that those events constitute an extraordinary situation that would have the
3: S&P down uh, a second year in a row. It's why you get somebody like David Tepper coming on the other day. Yep and taking down the market on his expectation that the fed was going to be more aggressive than people think that not just our fed but central banks around the world remain the preeminent story going into 2023 keep your eye on the overseas ball as much Mm -hmm. as you are here at home, because it all has cause and effect to how U.S. stocks will do.
2: It's fine. You know, it's like supply chain and geopolitics. Two things the market doesn't care about until it matters and they become the biggest, like, stories for the markets and and the headlines that drive the market. The
1: other big thing I would just say quickly is the biggest event globally this year is where does China fit in, in a global portfolio? The, the whole situation in China has completely changed the way people look at China as an investable asset. Four years ago, everyone yeah. was saying China should be 15% of your, of your portfolio because it's 15% of market capitalization globally. Nobody makes those arguments anymore. There are people who are honestly saying China is so fundamentally different from us that perhaps we should reconsider the political risks that are involved, the investment risk, and consider it a separate asset class. Uh, Nobody had that debate five years ago.
3: ago, Four months ago, people were saying China was uninvestable. Yeah. Four months ago. And then you have these little slivers of reopening stories where the ADRs start to go crazy again, the Alibabas, and, and all of the names that we talk about on a regular basis. But,
1: yeah. but, there is, it, but there is a legitimate question now about whether we should just invest China's 15% of global market cap. We should put 15% in if we're investing globally. There are people who are saying, no, we need to have a different a quality metric for assessing where they fit in in the global well, investment.
2: scheme. It gets back to Scott's point, right? You can see these, these bounces, these New York bounces, and we're seeing it right now on our screen with Alibaba, JD.com, Pinduoduo, for example. The K-Web is trading higher this morning as well, uh, always on these China reopening headlines. That being said, the policy in the U.S., and by the way, in China, too— The decoupling continues, you're seeing it on the tech side, tariffs are in place, those are not going away, right, as well. Um, You have supply chains that are diversifying away from China. That was turbocharged with the pandemic, too. I think headlines just this weekend that you have some of the auto manufacturers also now starting to source outside of China. That's going to continue as well. Plus the fact that China doesn't seem to be, and I realize there's lots of question marks about the data that comes out of China that is released by the government there, but questions about what economic growth is going to look like in the future. in that country uh, as well. So to your point, We don't even how, know what the infection rates are it? anymore.
1: How do we
3: even have exactly. like, Well, you are having like a million new infections a day in China mm-hmm. as, as we're having this and conversation have... about a reopening, COVID still spreading wildly in China and remains the biggest wild card for the pace of their own reopen.
2: Yeah, and you have the reports, right, that you have hospitals and ICUs that are um, reaching capacity in certain major cities right now and, and everything else.
3: All right, let's turn now to travel. Uh, With the winter storm canceling thousands of flights over the weekend, this remains a huge story, particularly, Morgan, for Southwest Airlines. Yes. Um, 70, what, they canceled 70% of their flights a day ago. They've cut 2,500 flights already today. Probably are only going to operate a third or so uh, for the remainder of the week. Uh, One of our, you know, look, one one of our producers we know who was supposed to be here this morning uh, from Closing Bell and Closing Bell Overtime is stranded. Uh, A Southwest passenger traveled to the Midwest over the holiday weekend and now is trying to find his way back to the East Coast, along with many other people trying to get to their own destinations.
2: Yeah, I got to wonder how the rental car companies are doing right now, too, in light of this as well, because I know people that are stranded that are renting cars and, you know, getting in and driving now to their destinations. You have CEO, Southwest CEO Bob Jordan saying, according to CNN, that Southwest Airlines has, quote, a lot of issues in the operation Right now, that's to put it mildly, you have the DOT coming out over the weekend and saying that they're, quote, closely examining whether cancellations were controllable, whether Southwest is complying with its customer service plan, as well as other pertinent DOT rules. Uh, So we'll see how that goes when you're raising the ire of the government. But overall, and Cowan points this out this morning, you saw Delta's operations were a bit more challenged, but overall it was really Southwest that has performed the worst over the last couple of days. Denver operation, uh, extraordinary, quote-unquote, extraordinary number of employees calling in sick there. But it's also, I mean, look what we saw in terms of the storm as well, not to be discounted. And by the way, having an impact on the energy markets too. Uh, you've got crude trading at three-week highs. Yes, China reopened as part of that, but it's also the fact that you have this freeze-in in terms of production down in places like Texas you got, right now.
3: You've got New York's governor calling it a once-in-a-lifetime storm. Um, you know, more than 25 deaths up in the Buffalo uh, area awful. alone, it's like a worst nightmare for the airlines. Not only does this happen on a busy holiday weekend, um, you know the Christmas holiday weekend, of course, but with a once in a lifetime storm. and we're having a lot of, of once in a
1: lifetime events, didn't the governor of Florida refer to the storm down there as a 500-year storm? Uh, that's a once in a lifetime for sure. And then we have a once in a lifetime event happening. It seems to happen an awful lot. I think. This is telling us something, isn't it?
3: Low-hanging fruit, as you said, though, for the government, the uh, Department of Transportation coming out and criticizing Southwest Airlines for the degree of the cancellations and delays that they have had, as Morgan suggested earlier, uh, calling that unacceptable.
2: Yeah, probably good to keep an eye on the insurers too, the PNC insurers, because I'd imagine they're going to be coming out with some uh, cat numbers as well tied to this. We're going to turn to NBC reporter Blaine Alexander for more on these travel issues and what she's seeing on the ground right now. Hi, Blaine.
4: Well, hey, Morgan. Hi, guys. Good morning to you. You talk about that once-in-a-lifetime type of weather that we're seeing. The weather really is going to be a crucial factor here in determining what type of compensation travelers get for their inconveniences over uh, the past couple of days. You talked about that statement from the Transportation Department. This really is a strong statement, and a lot of industry insiders are saying that it's very notable that the DOT is going to be looking into whether all of these cancellations, this unprecedented amount of cancellations, is due to controllable forces within the airlines control or uncontrollable forces. Now, in a statement, Southwest apologized for this, called it unacceptable, but said that they're pointing to weather, saying essentially they did what they could do on their end. They made sure that their staff was in place in the proper places, but simply they can't control the weather. However, the D- the Department of Transportation says they're going to be looking into exactly what caused all of this, because you'll remember that Southwest was one of the airlines that committed to reimbursing passengers uh, for cancellations within their control for things like hotels, taxis meals that they had to take on the expense while they were stranded so really what the dot finds is going to be crucial in determining what happens with these stranded passengers over the days to come now as for southwest and how they're going to be moving forward you said they're going to be slashing their flight schedule significantly they're only going to be operating about a third of their normal flight schedule as they try and get back on track but really the numbers already tell the story story when you talk about cancellations 2,500 or so cancellations already today from Southwest. Compare that to just over 300 from other airlines. Morgan.
2: All right, Blaine, thank you for breaking it down for us. After the break, we're gonna talk Tesla, which is down again in the pre-market right now, with the stock on pace for its worst year ever, down about 5%. We're gonna take a look at futures as well, which are a mixed picture in the pre-market with the S&P and the Dow both poised to open higher, but the NASDAQ under a little bit of pressure. Squawk on the Streets is back after this.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
2: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back. Tesla shares down another 5% in the pre-market on pace for the worst ever year for the stock. Today's drop comes on reports that the electric car maker has extended a production halt at its Shanghai factory. Joining us now with more is Craig Irwin of Roth Capital. Craig, uh, good to have you on. You got a neutral rating, $85 price target. Walk me through, I guess, your take on Tesla, which seems pretty bearish.
5: Yeah, we, we've been consistent on this one over the last, I guess, 18 months, two years. We've seen Tesla's egregiously overvalued. We knew that there would be several compelling um, alternatives coming into the market from uh, both new and established uh, brands, and that's really what's playing out. I mean, you see some very, very successful entries uh, from Porsche, um, from uh, Ford, uh, from many, many others like Polestar. I mean, so some of the, some of the, some of the, the newer names are doing well too, and uh, you know they're 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 growing at a more attractive growth rate than Tesla. Forty five percent is still fantastic, um, but you know there's better places to put money and. Uh, you know, people are, uh, are obviously liquidating their, their Tesla positions and, uh, and putting money elsewhere.
2: So you see this, you're talking about increased competition, maybe waning demand for Tesla products. You see this as a fundamental uh, story for Tesla and the sell-off we've seen in the stock. You don't see this as a correction in terms of multiples, given the fact that we've had interest rates increase and we've seen some of these high-flying tech names, which Tesla was lumped in with, uh, come off pretty aggressively in terms of valuation this year?
5: Yeah, no. You, you you can always point at multiple things. For for me, I'm 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 an you know an analyst focusing on on an individual industry, right? So when I saw Tesla as valued at a multiple of the rest of the automotive sector uh, combined, that I called egregiously overvalued. So yes, you can point to interest rates. You can point to um, short term economic conditions and a variety of other things. You know, like like um, COVID, for example, and the um, mm-hmm. COVID COVID enforcement in China. But the reality is that um, others are doing a good job too. Tesla blazed the way. Um, Tesla did a fantastic job. They have great products, but they need to do a better job. They need to hurry up and do things like get the mini car on the road um, and bite the bullet, build that factory in India, put a battery factory in India, and uh, you know dominate that market as well. Th- these are things that will give people in confidence in longer-term growth. You know, this dancing actor in a robot suit is like a joke. Right. And a lot of people that um, look at what was actually shown later as the state of the art for, you know, 2014, you know, you, you look at the semi truck. It's something that doesn't make fundamental sense. Tesla needs to get back to its knitting. They need to focus on the mini car. They need to focus on, you know, um, India and growth markets. And, you know, it's a good company. They probably will. Well, where,
3: where does all of the other stuff, let's just like the stuff, where does that factor in? whether it's the Musk selling shares, whether it's the distraction from Twitter, if, if you didn't have the concerns that you obviously do around competition and some of the other fundamental issues around the company, how would your rating be influenced, if at all, by the other things that investors are keenly focused on right now?
5: Yeah, so, so what what had people concerned in the last, just say, few weeks um, is the fact that uh, there was... There was uh, an understanding that Elon Musk was looking for another billion dollars for Twitter, so we saw Elon Musk with uh, Jared Kushner um, in Abu Dhabi at the World Cup. You know, Jared Kushner successfully raised money over there. Um, you know, there there obviously is a leadership um, issue for Tesla and for Twitter. You know, I think from a trading perspective, probably one of the best catalysts for um, anyone long Tesla would be if someone like um, Jack Dorsey or Dick Costello was to go back to Twitter because then uh, people would expect that Elon would refocus his attention back on Tesla. You know, my friends that are sort of in, in, in that little ecosystem say that, uh, that Mr. Musk is very concerned about the stock price. Obviously, we did see him, see him say that, that he's not going to be selling stock for this same period of time. Um, but I think he really needs to focus on operations, focus on giving us great cars. He's done a good job so far. 45% growth, pretty impressive. It's just overvalued.
1: Yeah. Craig, I'm wondering about what you think the market views Tesla as. It seems like it's almost an ordinary company these days. 2020, it was a great darling. It made 75 cents. It traded 300 times forward earnings. Now they're going to make, what, a little over $5 in 2023? The forward multiple is like 22. That's like almost a normal company at at this point. What does this say about the way the street is now viewing Tesla?
5: so, So remember, this is also a growth stock, right? So Growth stocks have notoriously volatile earnings forecasts, um, and what we're going through with the discounting um, both in the U.S. and China for them to drive volumes in the fourth quarter—volumes are obviously going to miss—means uh, that uh, automotive margins are probably going to be down about 100 basis points instead of up 100 basis points. So that's going to swing the forecast. Bysite knows that, so when, when you look at the, uh, the multiples on future earnings, they become a lot less relevant than the overall earnings momentum, and the earnings momentum is going to be negative. Right. You know that's there's going to be pressure because there are great cars coming in. They're going to have to price aggressively. Okay. You know you qualify for IRA. They're going to have to come out with a shorter range vehicle in the U.S. So you know all these okay. things pressure. markets. Craig Irwin. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
3: All right. Let's take a quick look at uh, futures again. Certainly a little bit different picture than it was a couple hours ago. Uh, we're still going to open higher for the Dow and the S&P not nearly As strong, though, as the picture looked uh, a couple hours ago, news that China was loosening more of those restrictions. Dow would open higher by 70 plus and the S&P just about five. More squawk on the street when we come back.
0: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash.
2: Well, the opening bell is just 5 minutes away and as you can see it's a bit of a mixed picture on this Tuesday morning in this holiday shortened trading week. We've got the S&P poised to open up 2 points, the Dow up 55 or 54 points, the Nasdaq under a little bit of pressure this morning, poised to open lower by about 10 points. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. We've got just a minute and a half to the opening bells. We want to show you shares of Boeing, which are trading higher by about half a percent right now in the pre-market. Talk about a stealth rally. They're up 57% since the start of this quarter, still lower on the year by about 6 or 7%. But look at that move. That's despite earnings that were pretty rough uh, to start the quarter as well. But, guys, you had just last week with uh, the Omnibus and the NDAA, you had that certification deadline that was stripped out for Boeing with the 737 MAX, the big order, aircraft order with United. Yeah. Uh, the commercial side of the business seems to be moving back albeit slowly towards some semblance of normal, and that seems to be really propelling the stock. And by the way, the Dow higher.
1: Yeah, and remember what happened in the middle of the year to, to, to Boeing. It had that huge drop in April and May. It was, what, 175, 185. It went all the way down to 120. And now it's come essentially all the way back. Uh, it, th- that's, we're talking about a 50% rally uh, since that bottom just a few uh, months ago. So uh, Boeing's gone round trip. Uh, and overall, it's right in the middle of the pack for the Dow, down about, as you mentioned, 6%.
3: time for this Santa Claus rally, right? I mean, you're you're supposed to get the last five days of the year and then the first two of the new year, and we better, Bob, get something going if we're going to actually have Santa Claus show up. But as as you talked about earlier, there's just a lot of headwinds hanging over this market right now. I'll
1: tell you the biggest thing that struck me this year, Scott, and I know you talked about it a lot, is the triumph of value over growth. Value down 7% this year, growth down 30%. And growth, of course, is largely technology, communication, services, a uh, little pieces of consumer discretionary as well. But if you take a look on the year and the winners and losers for tech stocks in 2022, uh, Apple's one of the winners. It's only down 25%. But Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon's down 50% right now. Uh, Tesla, which we just talked about, down 65%. Uh, Meta, of course, one of the big losers. Uh, There you see the the declines here. Uh, And what's extraordinary to me, guys, is the forward PEs on these. Remember, these were growth stocks. These stocks had forward PEs, 30, 40, in case of Amazon, 60, 70 times forward earnings at the start of twenty twenty two, and you could see how much they have all come down. Amazon is still high, but it's historically been high. Alphabet is essentially the S P five hundred. The SP is trading at about 17 times forward earnings right now. So my point is that these stocks, while they are still growth stocks, they're still above the multiples for the S&P 500. They've come down rather dramatically. So this year, 2022 is about the re-rating of technology earnings here. And Tesla there, 65% of the downside. Tesla, as we talked about earlier, Scott, uh, now is trading at a 22 multiple, rather remarkable. Now our our guest earlier said, well, what you wanna do is focus on earnings momentum, which is still strong
3: for Tesla. We should bring up the fact that, you know, pull up Tesla's market cap, right now as well, uh, because what a far cry from the beginning of the year. Tesla was at $1.24 trillion market cap. I mean, we we talked about it sort of in the marquee lights with with the other trillion-dollar companies of the Microsofts and the Apples. Its market cap is right around Walmarts now, and JP Morgan's too. And in fact, with the open now and the slide as you're looking at your screen here this morning, uh, down 4%, It's going to have a smaller market cap right now than both Walmart and JP Morgan. It underscores the fall from Grace Morgan that this stock has suffered. It's really stunning when you look at the magnitude of the decline, which has only picked up late recently.
2: It's picked up recently. You also had Elon Musk selling what? Something like $39 billion in stock since the peak we saw last November. Um, to your point, this was, to Bob's point, this has been a growth stock. Uh, the, the valuation had been pretty lofty. We've seen other electric vehicle makers also fall pretty dramatically this year. Mind you, smaller names, names like Neo, names Today, like Lucid. Neo yeah, again exactly. It, right? Exactly. Um, So so we've seen it. And by the way, the other more traditional OEMs, auto manufacturers, uh, have had a pretty rough year as well. But to your point, Tesla was considered one of those mega cap tech names. Uh, And I have to go back and now look because we've seen a lot of these names fall out of the trillion dollar club in general this year.
1: But let's look at the other way around. I guess because I have to my point about the value stocks this year, the winners this year who have replaced Tesla on the top list. Exxon, classic value stock. Visa, United Health, Johnson & Johnson, all of those stocks are up with the exception of Visa, which is down slightly uh, on the year. All are largely considered value stocks. They're now replacing what we saw Tesla there. Of course, we saw what happened with, with Meta, which has fallen way down on the list now. Yeah. So this, the, there's a huge rotation going on. At the start of the year, energy was 2.5% of the S&P. It's now approaching 6% yeah. of the S&P. Which is amazing
2: when you think about it, right? Um, And and it kind of raises the question, to actually see a more sustained rally in something like the S&P going into 2023, do you need the tech stocks to kind of kick back into gear? And is that even possible in a tightening environment in terms of the Fed and where we're going with that? Well, it
1: goes to the question of whether now, and I wonder what Jonathan Golub has to say about this, about, and he's going to be on in a moment, whether the tech stock, uh, the the value stocks have moved so much that they're becoming less value. They're they're getting expensive. This is the big complaint of the value people. They've waited 15 years for value to come back. And now I'm sure some of them are going to start saying they're starting to look expensive again. I'm curious to what Jonathan has to say about that. I I think
3: we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, since we talked about Tesla and we talked about growth, uh, Kathy Wood and and ARK. Uh, The ARK Innovation Fund is going to go down, if not the worst U.S. fund, uh, certainly one of them, near the bottom of U.S. funds for the year, down 67 percent. If we have watched just a unbelievably dramatic re-rating in a lot of those stocks, led of course by Tesla, but some of the other names, Bob, that are within uh, her universe. You you interviewed her a couple times this past year, and she is a true believer in what her strategy is. Now the question is, is she going to be less of one if this story continues into 23, right? The market might dictate what she is going to have to come to grips with in the year ahead.
1: As you've noted here, Twilio down uh, this year uh, uh, rather dramatic 83% Roku down 82 Unity software down 80 Teladoc down 75 Ui uh, UiPath UiPath down 74% so Zoom,
2: put, here's, yeah block, here's the here's
1: the issue was it extraordinarily bad luck or good luck that she became the darling just at the top of the growth market? She really entered just at that 2018-2019 period, which was the top of the growth. We didn't know that, but it was. And did she have the good fortune of coming in at that moment or the bad fortune? The, 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 the same with Peloton, for example. Is Peloton the most lucky or most unlucky company in the world? Because they came in in the summer of 2019, the IPO. You were all over that, remember? And all of a sudden, they became the darling. The stock quadruple. It was 25, it went to, what, 150? And then all the way, completely way down. Were they lucky because they caught that updraft on the COVID?
3: Yeah. Or were were they unlucky? They were a moment in time. They were both. Because now they're considered sort of
1: the the great pandemic, you know, uh, it girl of the moment, and then just sort of has now faded. Is that good luck or bad luck to have had that happen? I might have wanted a more steady situation where we didn't zoom up all of a sudden on on COVID and then now look what they're dealing with now, another $10 stock.
3: I don't know that it's luck. I mean, yes, they caught the the wave of of COVID, obviously, and was one of the quintessential pandemic stocks, but they misexecuted, too. They overproduced. They They overproduced, overproduced. uh, thinking that the gains that they experienced during the pandemic We're going to last longer than the pandemic. And much longer runway once the pandemic ended. And obviously that proves not to be the case. And what are they now? they're selling refurbished yeah. bikes refurbished the, at bikes, a discount. A
2: discount Something like five hundred dollars according to, I want to say it's a journal article this morning. Um, and of course they're another, this is another industry and this is another company that's seen increased competition right. in the midst of all of this as well. Um, but Bob, I think you make a good point. And just looking at the Auric Innovation Fund, just to put it in perspective, it did double during the pandemic rally and it did have names uh, Uh, that were COVID darlings in it, like, for example, Zoom, which is down 60% over this past year, maybe more. Um, So you are seeing all that pull forward demand from the pandemic, and now you're seeing the tide go out with it. But to Scott's point, which companies have done what with those opportunities that were afforded to them, with that burst of demand in the last couple of years. Here's what's important about
1: Kathy Wood. She is intellectually correct. Disruptive technology is what matters in the long run. If you look at this companies that really changed the S&P 500 in the last 50 years, they, they all came in with big ideas. They held on for a long time, like Microsoft went through some very volatile times. So she's right. Disruptive technology changes the world. The question is, what price are you willing to pay for that? And the people who... This is what I'm talking about, the timing. 2019 and 2020, when COVID hit, those people all rushed to her and rushed to her ideas, put a lot of money into that and drove the prices up to crazy levels. And so it's not that she's philosophically incorrect. The question is, were people willing to pay those kinds of prices? And when the Fed started raising rates, That was it. That was it. That was it. And you're philosophically right. And no, I'm not paying what you want for that company. I don't care if
3: it is disruptive. Because they, the people who invested in the ARK funds, along with Kathy Wood, along with so many other people, as we mentioned at the top of the program, got the Fed wrong. They got inflation wrong. And thus, their thesis on a lot of the stocks ended up being wrong, not because they were, you know, intellectually deficient. It's just from the mere standpoint that people didn't expect inflation to be as sticky. The Fed yeah. was going to have to be much more aggressive, raise quicker and higher than people thought. And we're still in that in environment where we're re-rating everything because of what's what lies ahead.
2: But isn't her long-term thesis also that disinflation, in part because of tech, tech disruption, is going to be... The bigger, more lasting story, I mean, you could probably, I would imagine, she would make the argument, Uh, looking at 2023 in the midst of the Fed and in the midst of prices, at least in some areas of the economy coming down, that that thesis is perhaps starting to take root.
3: That's the the bull case. case. Yes. Morgan lays out the bull case, right? Yeah. Disinflation, Disinflation. Slower pace of rate hikes. Unfortunately, the, the bear case is higher for longer, yeah. uh, higher terminal rate yeah. than, than people think, and that earnings are going to fall like yeah. you've been it, suggesting it, it, that all, they're all too you high. you need to understand, the,
1: the way Wall Street value stocks is on a discount cash flow model. And when you have a two-year, everything is based off of a risk-free rate of return. And when you have a two-year at 4%, that is a very attractive rate of return in an uncertain environment. And that is a very heavy competition, particularly for speculative tech stocks that either are not making any money or don't have any prospects. That's really all you need to know. Discounted cash flow, uh, the risk-free rate of return is very attractive right now.
3: All right, Let's continue the market conversation now. Bring in Jonathan Golub. He is Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse. It's good to see you. Welcome to the program. I'll just start where Bob sort of teed you up, which right off the conversation we're having now about technology, is 23 gonna be better or the same?
6: Well, I'm not as uh, overly optimistic on these things, but for a very different reason than you folks are are laying out, because I don't think this is simply a sentiment story and a valuation story and a discount rate story with interest rates higher. These companies have delivered terrible earnings this year. Um, What you had was during the pandemic, a lot of these companies. Um, and, and I wouldn't call it an EV car company part of that group, but a lot of the tech companies um, pulled forward a huge amount of earnings activity and the same thing with companies that, that did at home exercise equipment and things of that nature. And then what we did is we made the mistake of extrapolating that growth almost forever. And then when the economy opened up and when we were able to go and move away from buying goods back to enjoying life, those the earnings disappointed. The earnings picture revisions um, have been lower, the estimates go lower, and then they're missing the lowered estimates. The growth rates have been um, terrible on these names. This is the worst earnings environment for tech-related companies since the iPhone came out in 2008.
3: Mm. What's the earnings environment uh, more broadly gonna look like in 2023? Because that's gonna dictate what stocks do. You're optimistic, but not you know wholeheartedly. 40, 50 is your target for the S&P you know, obviously higher than where we are now, but not looking for a gangbusters year.
6: Right. So there's, there's a you know, there's a lot of, of movement and rotation. So the, the, what are the big stories? The first one is that with inflation coming off and that's a, a positive thing and that's what the market's expecting, but it's bad for corporate revenues because a lot of the reason that revenues have been so strong in the last year and a half is because simply you're paying, you know, more per unit rather than selling uh, more units, but then you have a lot of expected rotation within the groups. The market is expecting a bounce in tech earnings in the next um, 12 months, and I think it's going to take longer. This pull forward of activity of us buying, you know, whether it's a, a new laptop or what, whatever, or a streaming service. I think it's not going to be three or four quarters of weaker earnings which we've seen but I think it could be six or eight so I think we're going to see weaker tech than is expected next year so I think this is going to drag out a little bit longer I don't think valuations are they're a little bit rich still but they're not a, a problem on the other hand energy stocks are expected to go from a blockbuster year in earnings to something much weaker that's consensus expectations I think the market has it wrong I think the energy companies are going to surprise. The revisions yeah. have been higher recently than any other sector, even though um, the oil prices are coming down. So I, I think that there's going to be a number of big surprises on areas that are expected to reverse that are going to keep trending. Jonathan, I wonder. Uh, I want to
1: talk about your, your uh, estimates for 2023. Uh, you have a year-end price target of 40.60 on the S&P. So that would be up about 5% or so from here. Uh, your earnings look a little lower, uh, to 215. Now, the street this year was 220, 230 for next year. So you're, you're a little bit lower. Uh, you, you think earnings are going to be down next year. So slightly higher on the price, slightly lower on the earnings. So that means the multiple is a little higher, right? I mean, where are you on this? And, and uh, you're sort of right in the middle, from what I can see, most of the strategies.
6: Yeah. So. Yeah. So, first, our, our, our earnings, uh, I'm sorry, our, our market target is 40. Um, Forty, fifty, and that's kind of an uninspiring, like a five percent return for next year, which is really um, historically weak. But I think the the story here is that um, inflation is going to come down much more than than I think the average investor um, realizes. The the tips break evens um, are are saying that we'll have about two percent inflation by the end of next year, from a peak of um, you know of, of over nine percent. Um, and and economists' forecasts are basically uh, corroborating that. But what's weird about it is it's not overall inflation that's falling; it's goods inflation because of all this at-home buying that we did, which set up weird comps. Services are expected to stay really pricey, whether that's hotel or an airfare or something uh, like that. Wages expected to stay sticky. So it's it's interesting. A lot of companies are going to be stuck with higher wages and losing pricing power so we think it's going to be a little bit of a more difficult environment however the consumer is going to be really resilient think about this they're going to be getting a raise and the stuff they're buying is going to be coming down in price and jobs are plentiful consumers are going to continue to spend money that's going to keep the recession further in the future whether that's very late 23 or early 24 and that's going okay. to be the reason that multiples edge, not a ton, but a little bit higher, even though the earnings are a little bit soft.
2: Okay. I, I hope you're right on that. You know, I know you're the equity guy at Credit Suisse, but when you do see a four-handle on the two-year treasury, um, where do you put your money to work? Are there, are there opportunities right now in stocks? Does the 60-40 portfolio still work here after the horrible 2022 year we've just had? Uh, your take.
6: Well, first, Morgan, I I think that everyone who's in in equities needs to ask the question if you can get, you know, eight or nine percent on a high yield bond and default rates are really low, or you can get, you know, five or six percent on a corporate bond and default rates are really low, whether you should be putting some of your equity money in those things and locking it down. So this is the first time in in quite a while that equities are going to have that competition. And I think you're going to see people, um, you know taking some of that over the very you know over the very long term equities tend to be the better place to, to be but you're you guys are hundred percent right these higher short rates are going to give equities a little bit of run for their money which is one of the reasons why you know we have kind of i a, 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 i'd say an uninspired case for stocks at, at you know at five percent up next year however i do think that the next three or four months are going to be much stronger than the back half of next year because I right. think this falling inflation is gonna really um, catch people by surprise and be a positive story, but it's not gonna last all year. I think it's gonna be an early part of 23 story. I feel like
3: everybody seemingly likes healthcare. You're underweight healthcare, why?
6: Well, if, if we're gonna avoid a you know this recession, you don't wanna be in defense, and, and not avoid forever, but if that recession happens, like I said, late 23, early 24, being defensive means that you're just too early in these in these kind of stocks. So we're we're underweight in in utilities and healthcare and and reits and staples. Um, Their valuations we think are okay, but there's no reason to pay up for them at all if you don't think we're going over a cliff. The consumer, um, like I said before, is going to feel super empowered. They have you know strong wages. Um, they have. Plentiful jobs and the stuff they want to buy is going to be coming down. They're going to spend money. That's going to keep us, um, you know, out of a, a recession. So we like the consumer space. Energy stocks, even when oil was coming down, the earnings of these companies held up really well. And if oil backs up, especially if we get a Chinese reopening that's really sizable, I mean, we all have to remember what did it look like when we reopened our economy? It exploded to the upside. So there's a real potential. Oil to to be right. um, a, a big push there. So there, there's a bunch of things that are more cyclical that we like. Even though you'd say, "Come on, we may be going into recession, but I really want to be cyclical." And the answer is, "Yeah, I think you do for the next you know couple quarters or so."
3: Okay, Jonathan, I appreciate your time very much. We'll see you soon. That's Jonathan Golub joining us today.
2: Before we head to break, it's time for the bond report. Let's take a look at how Treasuries are faring this morning with yields currently trading higher really across the board right now the 10 year 3.807 percent we started the year at one and a half percent on the 10 year we'll be right back with all the major averages lower now.
3: Check out the top gainers on the S&P for the year led higher by energy names. Not a surprise as energy was the best sector by far, the only positive one, in fact, up better than 50 percent, led by Occidental. It's a Berkshire name, up more than 120 percent. And speaking of energy, tonight, do not miss our CNBC special, Taking Stock 2023. It's hosted by Brian Sullivan, doing a deep dive on the energy sector, 6 o'clock Eastern. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
2: Welcome back. Beijing announcing over tonight that it's dropping its quarantine requirements for international travelers. Arsima Modi is taking a closer look at what that means.
7: For the travel sector. Hi, Seema. Hey, Morgan. China will drop its quarantine requirement for passengers arriving from abroad starting January 8th. This is big news for the travel industry. Jake Fuller at BTIG writing it will be a big tailwind. Remember, there has been essentially no business or leisure travel to and from the country for three years. And on the last earnings call, Marriott CEO Tony Capuano said the market in China is most certainly where we're seeing the most challenges. Yet it remains the largest growth market for hotel operators like Marriott, which has averaged 40 hotel additions per year. These are franchise hotels operated by Chinese openers, uh, Chinese owners. Hilton and Hyatt also a significant presence there as well. Wall Street will want to see how fast the rebound in travel to and from China will be at a time when COVID cases continue to rise across the country. You do still need to present a negative COVID test to enter. Uh, China's Lunar New Year. That's what Wall Street is saying. That will be the, the that will be the big test for the travel industry. Historically, a popular time. To travel? Will we see a similar uh, rebound that we've seen in the past? And how quickly will the Chinese return to the United States, on average spending 50 percent more than other international groups here in the U.S.? In 2019, about 2.9 million traveled stateside. That was down from 3.7 million uh, in 2017, guys.
2: All right, Seema Modi, thank you. Yeah, that's going to do it for the 9 a.m. hour of Squawk on the Street.
1: You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
0: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at Wellsfargo.com/slash active cash.